everybody and welcome to the five bites podcast i'm your host rory monahan the podcast as always is brought to you by my sponsors policy pack software where you use group policy or mdm to remove admin rights manage and lock down applications java browsers and mitigate ransomware plus more and also by liquidware the creators of profile unity flex app and stratosphere ux the premier UEM app layering and visibility solutions. And also by Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues, regardless of where IT workloads or users are located. If you enjoy the show each week, you've them to thank. And now for some news. This week, there have been reports of active exploits of a Google Chrome Zero Day, which is listed as CVE-2020-15999. BleepyComputer.com reports that right now, Google have not disclosed too much information, but they will be publishing full technical details on the vulnerability on October 26th. Your Chrome browser should auto-update in the coming days, but obviously, if you're in a corporate environment, this is something you should consider deploying as soon as possible, as there are active exploits out there. You'll want to get to version 86.0.4240.111, which also patches four other vulnerabilities too, which are not zero days. That includes CVE-2020-16000, CVE-2020-16001, 16002, and 16003, which are addressing some vulnerabilities with the PDF IUM feature, some printing features, um, free media vulnerability, and also an inappropriate implementation in something called Blink. So don't sleep on this one. You'll want to get that latest version, that update of Google Chrome out there as soon as possible. Sonic OS, the operating system run on Sonic Wall Network Security Appliances or NSA devices, which is used by about 800,000 internet facing VPN appliances, have a disclosed vulnerability, which is CVE 2020 5135. ZDNet reports that Sonic OS contains a bug in a component that handles custom protocols. The component is exposed on the WAN or public internet, meaning any attacker can exploit it, as long as they're aware of the device's IP address. The security researchers at Tripwire said exploiting the bug is trivial, even for unskilled attackers. In its simplest form, the bug can cause a denial of service and crash devices. But a code execution exploit is likely feasible too. CVE-2020-5135 is considered a critical bug with a rating of 9.4 out of 10 and is expected to come under active exploitation once proof of concept code is made publicly available. Exploiting the vulnerability doesn't require the attacker to have valid credentials as the bug manifests before any authentication operations. So while there are no known exploits currently active, given the ease of exploiting this vulnerability and how popular these appliances are, this seems like an obvious one for attack. 
If you use Sonic OS, be sure to patch immediately. Not too long after Patch Tuesday, but Microsoft have released some out-of-band Windows updates to address a remote code execution vulnerabilities in Microsoft's Windows Codex library and Visual Studio Code. The two vulnerabilities are tracked as CVE-2020-17022 and 17023 and rank pretty high in severity, but thankfully there are no known exploits in the wild just yet. The Microsoft Windows Codex Library Remote Code Execution Vulnerability affects all devices running Windows 10 version 1709 or later and a vulnerable library version. You don't have to do anything to get this patched as it's delivered via the store. BleepingComputer.com reports that Microsoft says that it has not identified any mitigating measures or workarounds for the two vulnerabilities, so get patching as soon as possible. The Department of Justice in the United States has launched an antitrust suit against Google for some of its alleged anti-competitive practices to shut out potential rivals. The National Review reports the lawsuit will allege that Google uses a web of business agreements that maintain the search engine's prominence to the detriment of its competitors. Additionally, Google uses funds gleaned from advertisements in order to pay other carriers and cell phone makers or mobile phone makers to maintain Google as a default browser, cementing its position as the destination for 80% of all internet search queries in the United States. The Justice Department has been conducting an investigation into Google for over a year and the lawsuit represents the largest legal challenge to one company's dominance in the tech economy in years. I'm assuming the last one is probably that uh, Microsoft EU suit related to uh, Internet Explorer 11 or Internet Explorer in general rather. And on this topic, the Seattle Times had a really good article this week that provides examples to illustrate how Google's monopoly hurts all of us, like just doing a simple search on t-shirts in Google and seeing that you have to wade through results that are almost completely ads with a lot of details and examples included in the article that go further too. It's pretty eye-opening. BleepingComputer.com had an article on some of the new features in Windows 10 20H2. These include a star menu that is theme-aware, meaning the color shading will change to match your theme. The new Chromium Edge will now come baked into the operating system. The new Alt-Tab function that allows you to switch within application tabs is built in. They have tweaked the tablet experience for two-in-one devices. So when you detach the keyboard on, say, your Surface Book-like devices, Microsoft's notification toast asking you to switch to tablet mode will no longer appear. There are also some other small tweaks in there as well, but that's the guts of what has changed. And obviously, as I said, it's 20H2, so the change in versioning also comes into effect. Atlassian has announced that the company will end the sale and support of all its server products on the 2nd of February 2024. The end of sale and support will apply to Jira Software Server, Jira Core Server, Jira Service Desk Service, Confluence Server, Bitbucket Server, Crowd Server, Bamboo Server, Atlassian Built Apps, and Atlassian Marketplace Server Apps. Some exceptions will be made, including... 
allowing customers to purchase new licenses for Fisheye and Crucible, along with Bamboo Server until Bamboo Data Center is made available in the near future, they say. ZDNet reports that effective from 2nd of February 2021, Atlassian will end new server license sales and cease any new feature development for its server product line. It will also increase the price of maintenance of existing server renewals and upgrades, which will continue to be available over the next three years until that deadline of the 2nd of February 2024. So clearly trying to strong arm or incentivize customers to get away from on-prem setups and move to the cloud. The Hacker News reported Google security researchers are warning of a new set of zero-click vulnerabilities in the Linux Bluetooth software stack that can allow a nearby unauthenticated remote attacker to execute arbitrary code with kernel privileges on vulnerable devices. The set of vulnerabilities are being called Bleeding Tooth, and they reside in the open-source BlueZ protocol stack that offers support for many of the core Bluetooth layers and protocols for Linux-based systems such as laptops and IoT devices. One of the vulnerabilities in BlueZ has actually been accessible since 2018, and it's been patched now in versions 4.19.137 and 5.7.13. For its part, Intel has recommended installing the kernel fixes to mitigate the risk associated with these vulnerabilities. Bleepingcomputer.com reported on an overview provided by Google on a denial-of-service attack it suffered back in 2017. The attack was massive. It equated to 2.5 terabytes per second. While Google did not specify the source as a nation-state actor explicitly, Bleepingcomputer.com seemed to have drawn their own conclusion that it was a Chinese-based attack. Much like when I covered the story of a massive denial-of-service attack on AWS earlier this year, Google was equipped to handle that extra load while it mitigated the attack. It's reported that they are using these attacks and the information that they learn from them in order to help plan resources and scale up to handle potential future attacks as these attackers become stronger and, I guess, more sophisticated in their denial of service attempts. So I'm actually thinking about starting a new dedicated segment on the podcast each week on cyber attack or unintended data leaks because every week without fail, there is at least a couple of high profile cases. This week, there are several to report on. So let's get through some. First up, Pfizer leaked the private medical data of prescription drug users in the US for months or possibly even years thanks to an unprotected Google Cloud storage bucket. According to ThreatPost.com, the exposed data includes phone call transcripts and personally identifiable information, or PII. According to VPN Mentors cybersecurity research team, the victims included people using pharmaceuticals like Lyrica, Chantix, Viagra, Premeron, Ebrance, and more. So a pretty wide range of pretty widely used medications, unfortunately, including some medication for cancer treatment. Some of the transcripts were related to conversations about Advil, which is manufactured by Pfizer in a joint venture with GlaxoSmithKline. Some of the other PII information includes full names, home addresses, email addresses, 
phone numbers, and partial details for health and medical status, but most worryingly are those phone transcripts that I mentioned. Hundreds of people were exposed with some of the information dating back to October 2018. Researchers discovered the bucket open to the internet with no passwords or usernames required in July. After several attempts to contact the company, the bucket was finally made private on September 23rd. The security researchers at VPN Mentor said when they eventually got a response from Pfizer, after pointing out the exposed data, they got a surprising response stating, from the URL you gave, I failed to see how it is important Pfizer data, or even an important data at all. Which is just bizarre. When ThreatPost reached out to the drug giant themselves for a comment, a spokesperson for Pfizer said, Pfizer is aware that a small number of non-HIPAA data records on a vendor-operated system used for feedback on existing medicines were inadvertently publicly available. We take privacy and product feedback extremely seriously. To that end, when we became aware of this event, we ensured the vendor corrected the issue and notifications compliant with applicable laws would be sent to individual. Sticking with ThreatPost.com for this next one, ThreatPost also shared an update on the ransomware attack on Carnival, the world's largest cruise line operator. They confirmed that the attackers did indeed access personal information of guests, employees, and crew for three cruise line brands and the casino operations of Carnival Corp, but the company states that they believe it is a low likelihood that the data is being misused. Not really sure how they could be so confident, but maybe they'll be sharing some information to clarify that. Barnes & Noble bookstores in the U.S. got hit by ransomware. The attackers state that they stole unencrypted files as part of the attack. On October 10th, users of their Nook ebook reader and service began complaining on Nook's Facebook page and Twitter accounts that they could no longer access their library of purchased ebooks and magazine subscriptions. Upon discovering the attack, Barnes & Noble shut down their network to prevent the attack's further spread, which led to a service outage. To their credit, to their credit, they pretty quickly advised and apologized to customers about their data likely being accessed by attackers admitting email addresses, billing addresses, and shipping addresses, plus purchase history, were exposed on the hacked systems, but importantly, not payment information. The eGregor ransomware gang contacted bleepingcomputer.com claiming responsibility for the attack, sharing some screenshots of registry keys with the Barnes & Noble branding name in them. It obviously could be created very easily and just faked, but at least this is their claim. The public transport system in Montreal, Canada was also hit with a ransomware outage, but luckily for them, it did not affect the operation of buses or metro system. Unfortunately, people with disabilities who rely on door-to-door paratransit services are affected as that requires an online registration system, which is down. Again, like Barnes & Noble, at least this organization went public very quickly with the fact that they had been attacked. But unfortunately for them at this time, at least at the time of this recording, they have not yet recovered the systems. A cyber gang by the name of Darkside used some of its Bitcoin booty made through attacks to donate to charities. 
In fact, they donated $20,000 worth of Bitcoin to the Water Project and Children International. For its part, Children's International told ThreatPost.com that the matter is being investigated by them, and if the money is from hackers, they will not be keeping it. The Darkside Gang announced the deposits on October 13th through one of its corporatized press releases posted on a dark web portal, according to a BBC report, along with tax receipts for the donations of $10,000 apiece. In their press release, they state, quote, As we said in our first press release, we are targeting only large profitable companies. We think it's fair that some of the money they've paid will go to charity. No matter how bad you think our work is, we are pleased to know that we helped change someone's life. End quote. So a cybery Robin Hood of sorts. The report on ThreatPost goes on to speculate about the gang's motive for the charitable donations, assuming it is not purely altruism and is about attention and furthering their own causes and efforts. So this next one is not ransomware related, at least I hope. But unfortunately, the day after I published last week's episode of the podcast, Outlook and Office 365 suffered another service disruption. And that included some pretty annoying delivery failures just pinging back constantly, at least into my inbox, and breaking some of my messaging forwarding too. It was hurting for a few hours, but fortunately it was fixed later that day, so later last Friday. And a heads up, the free basic subscription to VMware Learning Zone has been extended for another year, but in order to avail of it, you need to sign up before October 31st. So if you're interested in that free training resource, sign up right away. And now, this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. First up is Steve Noel, who recommends that when enabling FSLogic's cloud cache in a non-persistent environment, you need to set the cache directory before sealing the image. So include that setting in your image. It's kind of the reverse of how you do things in a non-persistent environment. Like usually you would set something by a group policy or something like that. So after the server or desktop comes up, the settings apply. But in this instance, you need to set it before sealing the image. This week, PolicyPack's Twitter account shared an easy way to set OneDrive as the central storage location for your users. And this is just one small little helpful tip I recommend you you follow policy pack on Twitter at policy pack because they're constantly sharing these handy little tips and Joel stalker from control up has shared a really cool service now script action in the control up community it's not available quite yet but he has blogged about it so if you use ServiceNow and ControlUp, this is one that's going to be of interest to you. I have seen a little bit of a preview of it myself, and it's definitely something that I'm interested in, so you might be too. Hopefully they approve the script action so it shows up in the search for the community scripts soon. My buddy Charbel just posted this week on his top best practices for deploying Azure Sentinel. So if you're thinking about deploying Azure Sentinel, or even if you already have, but you'd like to see the opinion of someone else who is an expert in that, check out the blog post. And as with everything, I will share a link 
with this episode on 5bytespodcast.com and you'll find it under reference links for episode 147. Once again, James Rankin published a really great blog post, this time on reasons not to be using network drives on Citrix virtual apps and desktops. I had to highlight this one because network drives or map network drives are a real pain in my butt. And I've recently posted a blog post on what I feel like the advantages of just going with SaaS apps and published apps or published hosted apps versus virtual desktops are. And one of the big blockers or obstacles for that is reliance on these old network drives and how you could get away from them. James Kinden, who is an authority on Citrix WEM, blogged about the why does it's of Citrix WEM cache. Now the Citrix WEM cache is critical to the functionality of WEM and it's pretty much a complete unknown to most of us. So if you want to learn about that cache, check out James's blog post. Dr. Benny Trish recently did a session as part of the summit on perceived WVD experience. So getting into like perceived experience and showing some metrics on performance and performance based on the different configuration sets that you can use or build your WVD out on. So it's very interesting, so check that out. And finally, this week, there was a GitHub and Visual Studio Code Best Practices Guide published at vscode.github.com. So interesting to see a further intertwining of GitHub and Visual Studio Code, which obviously makes sense with Microsoft owning GitHub and pushing more of its open source ideology now. So hopefully the audio sounds good for this episode. I just got a new microphone. I am not actually sick this week, so that's not an excuse for the audio being different. I am actually using a new microphone, so I hope the audio is better. If you think it sucks that I should go back to using my old microphone, by all means, let me know. If you think the audio is not as loud as it should be and I need to increase the audio, let me know. I'm happy to take feedback. Well, that's it for another week. Thank you all so much for listening.